Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Ring, 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 ring. Psychiatry Consult, this is Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. This is James. I'm a resident on the general surgery team and I have a new consult for you. Tell me about the patient. This is a 73-year-old woman. Uh, She was hit by a bus and was brought to the hospital with a broken leg. She's now admitted to our general surgery team. She's post-op day two. Her pain is well controlled on hydromorphone and PRN oxycodone. Um, she's been NPO because um, we're waiting for a speech evaluation um, on her labs. Her white blood cell count was up, but it's now downtrending. Um, we think it was just due to the operation. She has a history of depression. She takes an antidepressant at home. But um, now she seems kind of manic, and that's the question I have for you. She She's staying up late. She, she's yelling at the nurses. She's seeing shapes in her room. Um, her husband says that she's never she's never been like this before. She's usually like very calm. Um, and we asked, and he doesn't think that she's been manic. But I'm wondering, should we start a mood stabilizer? Those are good questions, James. I'll see the patient and get back to you. Thanks. All right, listener. You're no fool. You saw the title of this episode. So it won't surprise you that we're going to talk about delirium eventually. For the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about hospital-based topics that often come up. We'll start by taking calls from our psychiatry consultation pager here at the Psych Essentials headquarters and consider what might be going on. So for today, let's think about this woman we just heard about and think about where delirium might fit in. Yeah. So Lindsay, what is delirium exactly? The first important thing to know is that delirium is not an illness unto itself. It's actually a syndrome that's due to underlying medical problems or underlying organic causes. Hmm. Okay, so what criteria would somebody have to have to be delirious? So according to the DSM-5, delirium is present when you have a a few things going on. The first is that there is a disturbance in attention and awareness. And so in other words, they have a really hard time tracking conversations or, or paying attention in general. The second thing is that this disturbance develops really quickly over a time course of like hours to days. And it represents an acute change from their baseline level of attention and orientation. And that um, the disturbances that are seen can, can fluctuate in their severity over the course of a day. Next thing is that you have really significant disturbances in a person's cognition and delirium. So you can see memory impairment, difficulties with language, perceptual disturbances like auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, potentially tactile hallucinations. They'll be disoriented and they might also have some problems with their visual spatial awareness in comparison to their baseline. You can also have an altered level of consciousness in delirium, but they cannot be comatose. But anywhere between comatose and totally alert and awake could represent delirium. It also has to be due to some underlying cause, such as a medical illness or substance intoxication withdrawal. And we'll talk lots more about other potential causes. Folks with delirium can also have an abnormal sleep-wake cycle, their affect, which we talked about earlier. So 
what their mood looks to be. They can have delusions. They can be kind of disorganized. And then I've heard hyperactive and hypoactive. Yeah, yeah. So the hyperactive form of delirium is the form that we tend to think about most commonly when we think about a delirious patient, someone who's really agitated, trying to take out lines. We tend to pay a lot more attention to these patients just because they require a lot more nursing care and provider support. But there's also a hypoactive delirium, which is a patient perhaps who's kind of one step down from their typical level of consciousness. They might just be kind of somnolent, hanging out in the bed all day, but also having really significant attentional deficits, possible perceptual disturbances. Wow. So this sounds like a pretty significant change from somebody's normal and also sounds pretty serious. Yeah. How common is delirium? Delirium is super common. There's an incidence of 20% on the wards. And in the ICU, it's much higher than that. It's 70%. So a lot of patients in the hospital have delirium. And that makes me think that there's some range, right? So there's a range from mild delirium to pretty extreme delirium. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do we know what the kind of underlying pathophysiologic cause of delirium is? You know, we don't really at this point. There are a number of hypothesized neural circuits and neurotransmitters that are suspected to be involved. Some of the ones that are mentioned commonly is like low acetylcholine, perhaps excess dopamine, excess cytokines or cortisol, suggesting some sort of inflammatory stress response, even increased serotonin. But... There's no clear one one way to develop delirium. There's a lot going on, a lot of potential ways to get it. So who who would get delirium? Who how do we know who those who those 20% or 70% are going to be? Right. So that's the thing is that all of us have some degree of susceptibility to it. For example, if either you or I were in a car accident, we got into the ICU, we were intubated, we could develop delirium potentially even though we're otherwise young and healthy. Thank you. (laughs) But there are some factors that can predispose people to developing delirium. So in other words, these individuals might just have a higher baseline vulnerability to developing delirium. And thus, you know, it requires fewer medical insults to make them delirious as compared to you or I, if we were to get sick. So they have less physiologic reserve in that Mm. word, in, in other words. Okay. The same things I'm imagining that could potentially make the, a common cold or a flu perhaps worse in some people than yes. other people, but anyone could get the flu potentially. Right. Like a lot of people, like a, a young woman with a UTI probably doesn't get delirious, but like an elderly woman with a UTI very easily could become delirious. And so a lot of these things, like you're saying, come down to sort of this this physiologic reserve. Mm-hmm. So some things that could increase your risk would be, like we said, older age, baseline cognitive impairment, other sort of medical comorbidities so coming into the situation with other things that are already taxing your heart your lungs your kidneys your liver right the severity of your illness and you can imagine a more severe illness of course having delirium before uh, having other substances involved other sort of things that impair your ability to orient yourself so a hearing impairment Mm -hmm. or a vision impairment an immobility or sort of a baseline malnutrition all these things are, are potential risk factors absolutely so in a broad sense Lindsay, what what could precipitate 
delirium for any anyone many things and actually it's so many things that i think it's really helpful to have a mnemonic so that you can think about it systematically to help guide your work up or help guide the the primary teams that are calling you for their consults Lindsay, is this going to be one of those mnemonics that's a really obscure word that no one's going to be able to remember and then you have to remember the word in order to remember the mnemonic and it's like three extra steps? No, it's easy. Well, okay, right. All right. Okay. What is so that? So one easy one is delirium. All right. Well, that's, that's almost, pretty easy, right? It's almost too easy. I know. All right. Walk us through it. What's the D for? Okay. So they can each represent a lot of things. So that All might right. be the All hard right. part about this mnemonic. <laughs> okay. So D can stand for drugs, dehydration, detox or discomfort is in other words pain okay so these letters are going to stand for multiple things just as a heads up okay exactly so then the e the e stands for electrolyte abnormalities elimination abnormalities so that would be something like patient with constipation can become delirious or the environment so being like an icu okay so not not waking up and not being sure where you are Mm -hmm. okay l so l stands for lungs like issues with your lungs, like hypoxia, liver, lack of sleep, long hospitalization. Okay. I? I stands for infection or infarction, like a cardiac or cerebral infarction. Okay. R? R stands for restraints. A patient being in restraints is more predisposed to developing delirium. Restricted movement or mobility, kind of like you were talking about earlier, James, and then renal failure. Okay. I? I stands for injury, impaired sensory input, or intoxication. U. U can stand for UTI, although that also is under the category of infection, or unfamiliar environment. Hmm. Okay, which also is under the category of environment. <laughs> yeah, so some of these are perhaps a little redundant, All but right. that way you remember them. Good point. M. M stands for metabolic abnormalities, so problems with glucose or thyroid problems, that sort of thing. Metastasis, perhaps to your brain, Hmm. or medications. Okay. There we go. Delirium. D-E-L-I-R-I-U-M. What's that spell? Delirium. All right. We got it. Knowing all that, how would you actually diagnose delirium? Right. So that's a good question. And it's usually a clinical diagnosis. There's no you know, lab markers that say, aha, this person has delirium. You can diagnose it using a lot of things that we talked about on the cognition part of our mental status exam. Because delirium is fundamentally an alteration of your cognition. Absolutely. So you'll ask orientation questions. Like, where where are we right yep. now? Or what year is this? Mm-hmm. What's the month? What's today? Exactly. Day of the week. Why are you in the hospital? Mm -hmm. So once you're done with the orientation questions, you'll then move on to attentional tasks that we've talked about before, like spelling world backwards or serial sevens or listing the months of the year backwards, whatever it takes to kind of get them to focus and, and do a task. And you can also just see how they're doing in terms of how they're interacting with you while you're asking them questions. Like, are they falling asleep and not able to pay attention during the, the interview? Okay. So the next thing, you just generally look at their level of alertness. So in other words, are they falling asleep during the interview? Just kind of out of it. You'll also ask them about perceptual disturbances. So are they hearing voices? Are they seeing things that other people don't see? Are they even feeling things crawling on their body? And then the last thing is that you'll just try to assess generally their cognitive functioning using some of the other things that we didn't talk about here, like how's their memory? Are they able to use language in a way that makes sense? Is there a validated 
tool that could be used to assess this? Indeed, there is. If you wanted to use a validated tool, you could use the CAM, which stands for the Confusion Assessment Method. And this is a tool that's often used by nursing staff in the ICU since delirium is so prevalent there. And it has very high sensitivity specificity, I think upwards of 90% for both of those domains. And we'll post a link to it on Psych Essentials so you can take a look. But it usually takes, I think, between five and 10 minutes to complete. Cool. Delirium can be pretty hard to diagnose. We're describing some pretty intense symptoms, but it can be subtle at Uh times. And sometimes if a patient has an underlying psychiatric disorder, like an underlying mood disorder or an underlying cognitive impairment, it's a little less clear. And psychiatry can be consulted to help evaluate for delirium. And sometimes some of the consults we get are, are asking, is this person depressed or, or are they manic or are they psychotic? When in fact, this is actually might just be delirium. And mm-hmm. I say not just delirium, but I say that to differentiate from, right. from medical illness. One thing to be in mind is as we think about what some psychiatric illnesses look like, like a bipolar disorder or or schizophrenia, and we think about the natural history of these illnesses, most of them present fairly early in life and are prevalent across long swaths of your life. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in the vignette at the beginning, the 73-year-old woman to newly have a change in her underlying psychiatric illness would be something that is ringing bells in my mind about what might be going on. Agreed. I am always pretty suspicious if the patient is elderly, has no prior psychiatric history, and you're getting called about assessing for first break psychosis. It is very, very unusual. And I am much more suspicious for delirium. And ditto somebody who was just in a really serious medical situation where maybe they were in the ICU, maybe they were intubated and had like assisted ventilation. And now they're extubated, but they're not really participating in occupational therapy or physical therapy. And they're kind of lying in bed all day. And somebody's wondering whether they're depressed. They could be, but I would say hypoactive delirium could look pretty similar if you have changes in attention, changes in concentration, poor memory, and like we said, affective changes as well. Hypoactive delirium, like you said earlier, Lindsay, can kind of fly under the radar a little bit. Absolutely. And we we've gotten so many consults with that picture that you were just painting James asking about if they're depressed and they they often have delirium and that doesn't mean it's a bad consult or an inappropriate consult because they it can be like we said pretty subtle and Mm -hmm. a little hard to differentiate so my hope as a learner is that you see some of these cases that are that are interesting and subtle and one of the things about delirium is we can treat delirium oftentimes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what would treatment look like the biggest thing that you can do to help treat delirium is to treat the underlying cause so if it's uti causing the person's delirium the biggest thing is that you treat the uti and we said by definition if we scroll all the way back up that delirium was caused by or attributable to an underlying condition by definition and that doesn't mean we always know exactly what it is but it means it's worth looking for Right. In addition to treating the underlying cause, really the first line treatment once delirium has developed is non-pharmacologic measures. Like what? This would be things like trying to avoid using opiates, benzos, and anticholinergics. Why Why is that? Because these things can precipitate delirium, in fact, especially benzos, opiates, and anticholinergics. Like some of these are hypothesized to, in fact, be a part of the circuits that cause delirium. 
I tend to think of any medication that's going to sort of disorient you or take you out of your natural thought process as a step in this direction. Absolutely. What else can you do? Another thing would be frequent reorientation. So it means maybe having a family member in the room, kind of remind the person where they are, and then having a clock and calendar nearby with the date written on it, super helpful. Okay. Are there things you shouldn't do? You should avoid using restraints if at all possible and avoid using catheters. Because both of them could be like pretty irritating and in and of themselves disorienting. Absolutely. Then there's some other, you know, simple things, just maintaining appropriate hydration, oxygenation, also making sure that they get out of bed during the day, if they can walk, trying to help normalize their sleep patterns at night by kind of clustering care so nursing doesn't wake them up in the middle of the night. Keeping the blinds open during the day is a small thing, but it helps to have that natural sunlight. Then making sure the patient has their sensory aids is also super important. So giving them their glasses or their hearing aids. Some of these sound like pretty straightforward or logical, but as you spend time in hospitals, you realize that a lot of the case, a lot of the times this doesn't happen. And we, we get, we get sidetracked or get distracted with providing other medical care and simple things, although they seem simple, are just maybe out of our routine in the hospital. And they're simple, but they actually have the best evidence behind them, even more so than our other pharmacologic treatments. Like these are the things we should be doing for everyone, but it, it can be hard sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm. If we were going to turn to medications, and sometimes we do, what medications would be appropriate? The medication that is commonly used are antipsychotics, and this is used specifically for patients with a hyperactive delirium whose agitation is interfering with care. So that would be like somebody who is constantly pulling out their IV. Exactly. Or they're ripping off their oxygen. Right, right. Or they're getting out of bed, but they they shouldn't be walking because they're a big risk for falling and hurting themselves. Exactly, because these behaviors can contribute to increased morbidity mortality. I see. And so the important thing to know here is that the antipsychotic is not treating the underlying cause of the delirium. It's really just helping with the agitation. Antipsychotics don't help to prevent delirium, and they also have a lot of side effects, like we've mentioned in our our previous episodes. So it's important to use antipsychotics pretty judiciously and just don't put, you know, everyone with delirium on an antipsychotic. Because like we said earlier, the treatment really is going to be to address the underlying cause. And sometimes that's just a slow process. Mm-hmm. Um, but the delirium in and of itself is not dangerous. I think we right. should. It's the potential risk that something could happen when somebody is in an altered state. Right. We said antipsychotics, like which? Haldol is the gold standard for delirium, and we like it because it comes in so many different forms. It's really our only antipsychotic that comes IV, and that's how we often use it for delirium. And so dosing kind of depends on the level of agitation, how old the patient is, their nutritional status. So especially for the elderly, it's helpful to start with a very low dose of Haldol and up titrate very slowly and gently. That makes sense. Yeah. Other antipsychotics in the atypical class have also done okay, um, especially compared head-to-head with Haldol and trials, although some of them have less flexibility in terms of, like you're saying, routes of administration. So quetiapine, which is Seroquel, is often used, especially mm-hmm. in, in fairly low doses. Right. And again, helps with agitation, but does not actually 
address the underlying etiology there. Right. Now, earlier you said that there are some medications to avoid as much as possible, like opiate medications or benzodiazepine medications because they can make somebody altered. Right. But I feel like there's one exception when you would. What's what's that? There is indeed one exception, and that exception is alcohol or benzo withdrawal. That is when the treatment is benzos, and that is the only time you should give benzos to a delirious patient. Because in that case, you are helping to facilitate the altered cognition that has come from this withdrawal, which is coming fundamentally from a neurotransmitter imbalance. Exactly. The, the GABA and glutamate Low GABA. Are, are not balanced, so you're helping to facilitate that process. So you are treating the underlying cause, but eventually will taper off the benzodiazepines. Exactly. But yeah, other than that specific scenario, no benzos. We've talked about a bunch of things. Lindsay, take it home. What's, what's the bottom line here? Okay, so the bottom line is delirium is really common in the hospital, so always be on the lookout for it, especially when a patient starts to behave differently from how they were previously. If it's unclear why a patient is delirious, think through the diagnostic possibilities in a structured, systematic way, perhaps using a helpful mnemonic. Then when you want to assess delirium, you can use a CAM tool or you can just kind of generally assess it using the cognition test that we talked about from your mental status exam. There are three types of delirium that we talked about, hyperactive, hypoactive, and mixed, which is kind of a combination of hyper and hypoactive. Be especially vigilant for the hypoactive form, which can fly under the radar in comparison to the dramatic hypervigilant type. Just because a hospitalized patient has a primary psychiatric disorder does not necessarily mean that their behavior is due to their underlying mental illness. It could very well be due to delirium. And then prevention measures are the most important and the best for treating delirium. But if agitation is a problem, we can use antipsychotics, but we just have to make sure that the benefits outweigh the risks of use because they're not benign medications. All right. Ring, 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 ring. Hey, this is Lindsay with Psychiatry. Hey, this is James with the Gen Surge team. Yeah, so I'm calling you back about that patient you called us. Yeah, uh, what do you think's going on? You know, so when we saw her, she was very confused. She wasn't even able to tell us her name, where she was, what the date was. She was talking about seeing things in the corner of the room, kind of like you were talking about. And when I tested her attention, she didn't get very far on the task that we provided her. We tried to have her spell the word world backwards and she got to L before she fell asleep again. And so she's exhibiting disorientation, attentional deficits, difficulties with language and perceptual disturbances. And all of that is consistent with delirium. Huh. That makes sense. You know, she, she's now, she just had this surgery. Right. Um, she had a leg injury and she Maybe in a lot of pain, which we're trying to treat, but that means that she's on a lot of pain medications. And she hasn't eaten anything. She's NPO. Mm-hmm. She's an elderly lady. Okay. So we have a delirium protocol here. So we'll we'll start that. Um, and if we need to think about medications, we will touch base with you as well. Yeah, you let us know. Perfect. Thanks so much for seeing her. Thanks. That's all we got for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to continue on our series about consultation psychiatry. So stay tuned for next time. Please check out our website. Let us know what you want to hear about. What's our website? It is psychessentials.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at psychessentials. You can rate, comment, share psychessentials on iTunes. 
Our music is by Javier Suarez off the album Tumbling Dishes. There's a link on our website. As always, people, places, details we've talked about, we're changed to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.